My name is Katie Heinley, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod. If you're the generous sort, you can be like Jerry, John, Garrett, Ben, and Janet. Support the podcast on Patreon with either a recurring or one-time donation. This helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. Today, I'm interviewing the star of the Montana FWP Fisheries Friday video, Two Fish, Too Furious, <laughs> Katie Fury. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Thank you for that incredible introduction. Also, I would just like to say that you have an amazing podcasting voice. And... <laughs> I hate my voice, so I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> I still have to do your intro now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and thank you. <laughs> okay, let me, let me keep going. Katie grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, exploring the woods with her dog Hershey and cat Kitty. She began honing her skills as a field biologist, catching every frog, toad, salamander, and minnow she could find. Upon graduating from the University of North Carolina, Katie moved to Montana to work her first of many seasonal field positions. After working in the Northern Sierra Mountains, Yellowstone National Park, the Tongass National Forest, and Lake Clark National Park and Preserve, she finally returned to Montana to get her master's in fish and wildlife management with Dr. Christopher Guy in the Montana Cooperative Fisheries Research Unit at Montana State University. Her current research investigates the feeding ecology and trophic relationships of salmonids in Georgetown Lake to determine the efficacy of introducing a piscivorous strain of rainbow trout to improve the kokanee fishery. Okay, now I'm done. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Thank you. I think this episode is just going to be us laughing. If listeners won't be abundantly clear, we know each other and are good friends. (laughs) Okay. Um... So going through your CV, which is always fun for me, um, especially with people that I know because I could find new like tidbits about people. Not all of your jobs were specifically fish focused. So I was curious where your interest in ecology more broadly first began. Um, you know, I really, I think it's just something I was born with. It was innate. I mean, my earliest memories surround animals. So maybe I wasn't like consciously aware of ecology as a principle or a thing but I've always been interested in animals um specifically wildlife and nature there's a a story that my dad loves to tell whenever possible I was maybe like three or four and we were sitting at the kitchen table eating breakfast and there was a fly buzzing in a window and my dad just like rolled up the newspaper he was reading to go kill the fly to get rid of it And apparently, as soon as he stood up from the table, I just, like, burst out sobbing, begging him not to kill this fly, because I loved it. Um, And he was, like, pretty thrown off by the sudden outburst, because it was uncharacteristic of me to just start sobbing. So he let the fly live, probably just, like, released it outside, I don't really know. But, yeah, so I've just always been an animal lover. I grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. In a, in quotations, rural area, because it's not rural for Montana, but it's felt rural for uh, Chapel Hill. It was like a neighborhood with houses that had 
several acres was forested. Mm -hmm. So there was just, you know, quite a bit of land that I could roam on as a kid. And I did spend most of my childhood just walking through the woods with my dog and my cat hanging out with me. Yeah. And I just remember spending all my time just like turning over rocks and leaves and logs to just see what was under them. If it was roly polies or frogs or skinks, sometimes a snake, which was less exciting and sometimes frightening, (laughs) but also cool. Uh (laughs) In elementary school, we had a science lab that had, you know, all sorts of animals, bunnies, mice, hamsters, pythons, iguanas, parakeets. And that was my favorite time of the week whenever we got to go there. Um, Probably the only class that I was well behaved in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I think it's just really his memories revolve around being outside or hanging out with animals. So I think that's where it began. And then at some point grew into knowing what ecology was and thought it was cool. (laughs) Yeah. So at one point, uh, was it like in undergrad or in your first tech positions after did you focus more towards fisheries than like any other aspect of ecology yeah so an undergrad I didn't have um any fisheries experience um I was exposed to some wildlife management and kind of broad like ecology concepts but nothing really with the fish focus some like there was like aquatics and streams Mm -hmm. but you know, like I think I always thought like fish were neat, but I didn't really think beyond that. I was, you know, interested in like big mammals, like tigers and lions uh-huh. and bears. But I, you know, thought everything was cool. And then after my first field tech position on the Lewis and Clark National Forest in Montana, you know, I applied far and wide to all sorts of seasonal technician positions and, um, eventually landed a field tech position with California Department of Fish and Wildlife, where most of our field work took place in the northern Sierras, working on the federally endangered Sierra Nevada yellow-legged frog. And this frog is native to high mountain lakes in the Sierras, and these lakes were naturally fishless, but due to um, widespread and often indiscriminate stocking of high mountain lakes, trout, the frog populations declined because non-native trout feed on their eggs, tadpoles, and sometimes even the young adults and compete for food sources. And I worked there in 2017, which was after a very heavy snow year for the Northern Sierra. So we were actually snowed out of most of our sites until like mid or late July. And so because of that, to keep us busy, we got sent out with the fisheries biologists and that's when I really became exposed to fisheries for the first time and I think the day that kind of solidified my interest in fisheries and pushed me into it with no return was when we were just electrofishing a trout stream I remember like how fun it was to electrofish and like the rush of like getting to a new pool or an undercut mm-hmm. bank like just waiting for the fish to pop yeah. out to um, net them and then we also found like a little nest of really scruffy sparrow chicks on the shore kind of tucked into some willows we like passed a stretch of bank where it was just like popcorn there's little toadlets 
like thousands of them hopping around. Um, and then in like probably our last pool or close to it, we like shocked up a 16 inch rainbow trout that was by far the largest fish we got of the day. And I just remember it being such such a cool and interesting day and like how it was like magical and I was like I want to do this forever Mm -hmm. um so I think from that once that position ended I focused primarily on looking for other fish jobs and building my experience with fisheries yeah so from that experience you worked several different positions between like Yellowstone National Park and up in Alaska so what was your favorite job of those that you worked until you came back here to start a master's? Oh man, you've probably been prepared for me to. Your questions are rude. Yes. <laughs> How dare you make me choose a favorite? I think when I worked as a fisheries technician for Lake Clark National Park and Preserve, that was like, I mean, it's a roadless national park in um, southwestern Alaska extremely remote stunning like the most beautiful gorgeous place I've ever been and this was summer 2021 so you know you're the worst of COVID I'm able to get back out in the world and I think the combination of being in such an incredibly beautiful location getting to work with adult salmon among a, a lot of other fish and opportunities it was like a really felt like I really came into myself as a scientist in a way that I hadn't before I struggled a lot with imposter syndrome and still do um, because I didn't study fisheries in undergrad and felt like I was kind of late to it I was like I don't I don't know enough like how how am I ever gonna like get into grad school or be a successful fisheries researcher because i don't have a ton of experience with it. And I felt like I gained a lot of confidence from that position. And I also just got to do like the most insanely cool things for work. So that definitely helps. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, Throughout or within your, how do I want to ask? I just want to ask like what extra projects were maybe your favorite that you headed up because in your CV you have, a couple like all these star awards because you were just such an exceptional (laughs) technician and I was just curious of those if you have a favorite project that you got to like take the lead of in any of your technician positions first of all how dare you compliment me (laughs) (laughs) yes that I think that's a very good question thank you yeah I, I I think why I gained a lot of confidence um as a technician in Lake Clark is because I was kind of given a lot of responsibility um, in a way that I hadn't necessarily had an opportunity for in previous positions. It's, you know, it's a massive national park and they have so many projects that they could do and so many things with just really limited time and resources. And because of that, you know, I was, I was eager to take on as much work as possible. And so I was able to do do some really cool things like one project in particular that I took on a lot of kind of the lead on at a certain point was a lake trout and mercury food web project it's it's a U.S. or was a USGS project trying to understand how mercury moves through the 
food web. And I believe they collected like similar data and samples in places all around Alaska and I think the country. But Lake Clark was one of the places that was selected. And so for that, we had to catch like 30 lake trout from different zones in the lake. Then we had to catch 20 or 30 of five or six of their prey items. So prey fish, we had to collect zooplankton samples, water samples, invert invertebrate samples, paraphyton samples. And this was kind of coinciding with the start of fish camp, which is um, they have fish counting towers on the New Halen River, which drains Lake Clark to count adult sockeye salmon as they return to spawn. And so the our lead and pretty much everyone else except for me and one other person were sent down to go set that camp up. But we still had a lot of samples we needed to collect for this project. And so I was kind of left to to finish it up, which was, you know, I, it was a little stressful, but also really cool to get to just take the boat out on Lake Clark and try to go find different fish or different places where we can get samples. So that was really cool and a really incredible experience to be able to do that. Do you think that led into your your general interest in food web ecology that is seems to have uh, taken you to your master's or is it just like oh, I just keep happening to work on all these food web projects. <laughs> um yeah, I think it's the latter. I mean, yeah. I do think like food webs are interesting and food web ecology is very interesting but I think it's not something I've really consciously sought out I worked as a lab technician for a previous MSU PhD student Haley Glassick and I helped her out with her lab work so I was primarily just going through her fish diets in the lab and her research was on food web dynamics in Yellowstone Lake in Yellowstone National Park. And so that was my first exposure really to food web ecology and feeding ecology of fish. And with that, uh, Haley is an incredible mentor and human and gave me the opportunity to take on a side project focusing on the diets of long nose suckers in Yellowstone Lake, which eventually led to a published peer-reviewed paper, which is still crazy to think about. Uh, and I often really struggled with imposter syndrome because I was like, I don't, how, why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this. I don't, <laughs> I don't know anything about fish, but that really opened a lot of doors for me. And I'm so internally grateful for Haley to get me such an incredible opportunity and mentoring me and always having confidence in me, even when I didn't have it in myself. So nice. To, well, it's nice to hear on multiple fronts. One, just that the role of mentorship can do so much in furthering people's careers, but also that we like have similar perspectives. Like even now I'm still like, oh, what am I doing here? But then I see you and I, I'm just going to fill this with compliments for you. <laughs> I'm like, Katie is so good at what she does. And it's nice to know that it's like, well, if she has these doubts and I have these doubts and we both know that the other person is actually really competent and good at their job, then maybe like we actually are good at what we're doing. And it's just that little seed of self-doubt that we can just ignore eventually. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, like imposter syndrome, I think is just so, so common, especially at our stage of our careers. 
more than I think we often realize. I think more often with women too, especially in a male dominant, historically male dominated field. Yeah, it can really feel like we don't belong or we have to try so much harder to like dig out a spot for ourselves. But I always, I mean, I do the same thing with you. I'm like, hey, D. <laughs> I was like, she, she, she's so smart and she knows so much and she has such a cool project and she's great at everything and I don't know R as well as she does <laughs> what am I doing here payback with compliments <laughs> for those of you who don't know Katie is an R whiz truly an incredible amount of knowledge just on the fly <laughs> from her brain okay let's move on <laughs> We're, we're both better than we think we are. We're going to move on from there. <laughs> so given that we've touched on a little bit, can you talk about uh, a little bit more about what you're actually researching for your master's on Georgetown? Yes. So as mentioned, my study site is Georgetown Lake, which is a high elevation reservoir in western Montana with a very popular salmonid fishery and has been described as the best stillwater fishery in existence by one angler. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so there's, there's three sportfish species in the lake, rainbow trout, brook trout, and kokanee salmon. And the rainbows and brooks are sustained by annual stocking from Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks hatcheries. And the kokanee, although not native to this body of water, are wildly reproducing. And many anglers enjoyed targeting kokanee in Georgetown Lake because they can often catch quite a few of them. But the length of kokanee has typically been considered unsatisfactory by managers and many anglers. For like decades, I've found like archive reports from FWP from the 80s and earlier, like, we need to improve the kokanee fishery at Georgetown. And so in 2015, Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks began stocking another strain of rainbow trout. It's a piscivorous Canadian Gerard strain rainbow trout into Georgetown to increase predation on kokanee in the hopes of reducing their density and therefore improving the average size of kokanee. So they thought there was density dependence occurring in the system. And if they can um, decrease the abundance of kokanee, that might increase the average size of kokanee. And so now there are three strains of rainbow trout that occur in Georgetown Lake, the Piscivorous Gerard strain, Eagle Lake strain, and an Arley strain of rainbow trout. And since 2015, there's been evidence to suggest there might be an increase in the average size of rainbow trout. And in 2020, there was an increase in the average size of kokanee, like a fairly noticeable one for FWP. And they just didn't understand the mechanisms affecting the observed changes in growth and potentially relative abundance and rainbow trout and kokanee and so they initiated project to research the feeding ecology and trophic relationship among the salmonid species in georgetown lake 
primarily to provide insight into whether predatory mechanisms may influence the abundance and size of kokanee. So if the Gerards were eating kokanee, if other rainbows or the brook trout were eating kokanee, and to what extent were some of the major questions. And so to accomplish this, we're conducting a diet analysis study, you know, taking their stomachs to identify prey items to determine dietary habits of each species and then strain of rainbow trout. And then we're also conducting a stable isotope analysis of muscle tissue to determine the trophic relationship among the species and strains of rainbow trout to see if that agrees with our diet data or how it may differ. Just understand kind of what's what's going on in the lake and then use the estimates from the diets and stable isotope analysis to estimate the consumption rate of kokanee by rainbow trout strain and brook trout. But spoiler alert, the rainbows are not eating kokanee. (laughs) Uh, We figured that out pretty, I guess not pretty quickly, but last winter was when my lab techs first started going through the diets. And now we've done couple hundred rainbow trout diets and haven't found a single kokanee. I think one long nose sucker was found in a diet and that's the only evidence of fish consumption by rainbow trout in the lake. So yeah, so we can answer that question, but there's still a lot of really interesting information we're going to be able to get from this data. There's evidence to suggest that survival rates between the strains are vastly different. Um, and that growth rates may be different between the strains. And so um, we might be able to tease out some reasons why that could be. Awesome. Do you have any thoughts on if it's not predation on kokanee that's causing the increase in size, what might be the result of that? Yeah. So I'll say that since 2020, the average size of kokanee has decreased again. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, kokanee they're a non-anadromous form of sockeye salmon. So they have short life cycles, you know, typically only live four or five years before they spawn and die. So they can have pretty, pretty boom and bust cycles because of that. You know, you might have some really strong year classes or weaker ones. So it, it can be hard to tease that out. But one running theory right now is Georgetown Lake is a reservoir and it was kept like at least a meter higher than it typically is kept for a couple seasons, I think 2017 to 2020 at least, maybe longer, I'm forgetting off the top of my head. So it's possible that because it was kept at a higher level, there's an influx of nutrients from uh, the flooding of the terrestrial areas around the lake that it often didn't have access to. And so that could have you know, led to an increase in prey items for kokanee. So that that's that's kind of a running theory right now. But unfortunately, I think we'll probably just not know the answer because we don't, there's not enough data before, during, and after to understand what might have happened there. Right. Um, so, yeah, un- uncertain at the moment, but it, it doesn't, even though it kind of, was like the perfect timeline from when Gerards were introduced into the lake to see a population level effect of kokanee if they were 
mm-hmm. predating on them it you know doesn't seem like that happened <laughs> yeah i need to mention this before i forget but the <laughs> in the intro that i mentioned that katie starred in this uh two fish two furious video that uh, montana fish wildlife and parks put together for a fisheries friday feature on instagram and i will link that in the bio because it's very funny uh <laughs> I think they they saw an opportunity with Katie's last name and took it. (laughs) I would like to say a few things about this. First off, again, how dare you? (laughs) Secondly, I can take no creative credit for the Two Fish, Two Furious and the movie poster they made. FWP social media deserves a raise because it was incredible. (laughs) And then also, I have not the video in full because I oh just gr- hate watching myself <laughs> talk and hearing myself talk and I hadn't showered for like four or five days by the time this was filmed because um the cabin I stay at at Georgetown Lake doesn't have running water and so I don't when I go sample I, I don't shower <laughs> and it's often too cold to jump in the lake so I, I just cringe too hard to be able to watch it. But I've gotten positive feedback, even if I can't stand it. This is primo behind-the-scenes content <laughs> of this video. Yeah, also to note, I, um, I had to tie my phone to a fence post to record this because Georgetown Lake gets windy, very windy. And the only time it was calm enough to like record a video where you just weren't going to hear wind was like first thing in the morning. But FWP biologist and technician, they commute to and from Missoula to Georgetown Lake every day typically. So they wouldn't get up until, you know, 9.30, 10-ish. And by then the wind's already starting to pick up and we're usually like trying to just like get things going. So I, yeah, I had to just tie my phone to a fence post to record that. Amazing. There were a lot of takes because there's actually um, bald eagles and the trees above me making a lot of noise. Oh, so funny. Is there anything else about your master's uh, or this project you want to talk about that I just didn't think to ask about? Yeah, I guess I can say that with figuring out fairly quickly into my project that, you know, the biggest questions we had of if and how many kokanee were being consumed was answered with a resounding seemingly none or very few. We've since pivoted to, you know, I think I mentioned earlier, kind of focusing on kind of differences in strain performance, whether that's survival or growth. But then also I have a very um, incredible undergraduate technician working for me in the lab Jody Clark shout out she's amazing (laughs) um who is taking on a lot of the footwork and understanding more about kokanee in the system so we're taking a closer look at kokanee diets we're taking a look at zooplankton assemblage and hopefully abundance in the lake to see how well that correlates with what we're finding that they're eating to see if possibly it's prey limitation. That's why they're not getting large enough. It's possible that uh, kokanee are planktivores, and so they primarily eat plankton, large-bodied plankton like daphnia. 
So it's possible that Daphnia just don't perform well in Georgetown or there's just so many other fish that are going to feed on them that there's, you know, their um, abundances aren't high enough to sustain kokanee that they can reach larger lengths. And then we're also looking at their gill raker morphology to understand how, like, if their gill raker morphology is could reflect the zooplankton um, assemblage in the lake. There's some recent literature that's come out to that, you know, gill rakers do evolve on a time scale of potentially decades. So it's possible that their gill rakers have evolved to be finer or less fine, you know, to reflect the prey that's available in Georgetown Lake. Georgetown Lake is not a typical body of water for kokanee. It's a shallow reservoir and kokanee are often found in deep glacial lakes. Georgetown doesn't even stratify during the summer because it's so shallow and windy. So yeah, it's possible that there's just something something weird going on at Georgetown Lake and we're hoping by um, you know, focusing a little more into kokanee dynamics that we might be able to tease out some of that. I will say we're not we're not looking at evidence of their gill rakers evolving. We're just looking to see um, if they might be slightly different than like an average kokanee gill raker. That's so wild. I don't think I ever considered the gill rakers could evolve that quickly. Yeah, there's I think Katie Wagner at University of Wyoming had a master's student whose name I am very unfortunately blanking on right now. Um, looking at gill raker morphology in high mountain lakes in the Wind River Range of Wyoming as, you know, trying to provide evidence for evolution of their gill rakers. And I found her thesis. She, I think, is in the process of publishing that part of her thesis, but it seemed like they found fairly compelling evidence to suggest that you know, gill rakers of some of the populations had evolved, you know, in less than 100 years, I guess, maybe about 100 years. I don't remember exactly when these lakes were stocked. But yeah, not like um, a huge time scale that because we're pretty sure that kokanee were introduced into Georgetown Lake in the 1930s or 40s. So, you know, it is possible that their gill raker morphology has changed over time to reflect being in a you know unique ecosystem for kokanee oh that's super cool i also love how full circle you having a undergrad mentee is (laughs) i know i i have vowed you know to to pay for it a lot of the mentorship and help and experience i got um hopefully doing that it's easy when you have you know you work with really incredible technicians and I always say that Joe's more qualified than I am (laughs) (laughs) which makes my job easy (laughs) I feel like good technicians are so underrated they make your life so much better (laughs) yes cool I also wanted to talk with a bit of a deviation from your research and work but I think we don't stop and talk a lot about our states of mental and physical health just in like work in fisheries broadly and definitely in academia and since you have experience with 
this on both ends. I was wondering if you might feel comfortable sharing about your experience being diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and then ADHD as well. Yeah, so I'll just start chronologically. So since 2018, I had some weird symptoms, primarily a very swollen but not painful right knee. Couldn't really figure it out. Got it drained, steroid injections, went on my way. Came back about eight months later, and then November 2019, I had surgery to get my right knee scoped to see why it was persistently swollen because from our MRI and x-rays, nothing was wrong structurally, but it was very, very swollen. Surgery went well, but didn't really answer many questions. Um, Just kind of was like, it's really swollen and there's like a lot of scar tissue but we don't know why, but like this could happen. Just we won't, you know, only time will tell is kind of what I was left with. And then was supposed to have a three or four month long recovery to get to my 100%, which was very physically brutal field work, you know, wading across swift rivers with a heavy pack and backpacking off trail and waders, just pretty dumb stuff like that, which I loved. And spoiler alert, my recovery did not take three to four months. In fact, at that time frame, I was in worse shape than when I had surgery. For those of you who might remember, exactly three or four months after November 2019 was COVID shutting everything down, including doctor's offices for a while. And so it took until June 2020 that I was finally diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis And at that time, things had progressed and I was in very rough physical shape and also mental shape. I couldn't extend my right leg very far because of all of the swelling. So I had a very dramatic limp and really just could barely walk. I was, you know, incredibly stiff and in chronic pain. I, at that point, by the time I was diagnosed, my other knee, my elbows, like my right thumb, right foot, right jaw were all affected and painful and stiff in some way. And not to mention, I had very overwhelming fatigue and brain fog. Like I would wake up and go have breakfast and then have to go take a nap. Um, It was like, didn't anything was just had to take a nap after go to the grocery store, have to take a nap. And so, you know, with this coinciding with COVID and not knowing for so long what was wrong, getting my diagnosis and then my subsequent recovery. I had to take over a year off of work because of my health, which is not something I wanted to do or really, um, I think, accepted even at that time was the right thing to do, even though looking back, it was like I couldn't do anything. Um, I could barely focus on my health, let alone a job on top of that. Mm-hmm. And then from, you know, June 2020 through April 2021, I was focused full time on regaining my mobility and strength, which was the most challenging thing I've ever been through. Um, I had to do a lot of that on my own because, again, it was COVID. I was living with my parents at the time and my sister and all of us. um are high risk and we're high risk in a lot of ways for COVID. And so, um, you know, we weren't comfortable with me going to physical therapy in person because the only physical therapy office in that town was in a gym. 
Um, and so it was just too high risk um, for me to do that. So I was left to kind of navigate my recovery alone, which I, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. Yeah. Um, you know, I had to relearn how to run. Uh, I remember like running for a full minute on a treadmill, which like a very exciting like benchmark for myself. And then I was exhausted afterwards and like probably had to take a nap for the rest of the day. But I was able to make enough progress that I could hike, you know, 10 plus miles. I could run five plus miles. And while my right knee didn't feel normal, it didn't hurt. It just felt kind of weird. And so then... May of 2021, I flew north to Alaska and worked as a fish tech in Lake Clark National Park and Preserve, as I've mentioned. And I think that's why that was such a transformative experience. It was like, I'm finally out of my parents' house. My health is on the mend. Everything's looking great. I'm like doing what I love again. And I thought for a very long time that I would never be able to do that again. And so that was awesome. But I, you know, I was very nervous still about my physical health and I felt unsure of how to navigate having an autoimmune disorder, especially living in such a remote place. And I was, because of that, very cautious to push myself physically. Um, You know, any hike I did, I was afraid, like, what if I push myself too far and I have a flare up? I just didn't know enough about rheumatoid arthritis and it can be so individualized that I didn't know enough about it and myself of, um, you know, where my boundaries were and what I could and couldn't do. So I had a lot of apprehension and anxiety surrounding that, but I made it through the season in good health. Um, I regained a lot of confidence in myself as a scientist and then just, you know, physically and like what I could, the ability I had and what I could do. And then that winter I applied to and accepted my current position with Dr. Chris Guy and moved back to Bozeman in January, 2022, and then almost immediately had a flare up, um, which then turned into a prolonged, almost nine month flare up from, you know, February to September, 2022. And it was very stressful to deal with on top of navigating my first year of grad school. I went through a lot of cycles of increasing my medication, getting on prednisone, getting off prednisone, the flare-up still being there, rinse, lather, repeat. Um, My rheumatologist was still in Colorado and my insurance at the time didn't cover out-of-state doctors. And so I was having to communicate with him just messaging because I didn't want to pay or didn't want to pay and really couldn't afford to pay $200 to have um, a virtual visit with him. And so that also hampered a lot of my um, ability to get it under control faster. And eventually had to start a new medication, um, which I really didn't want to because it's a specialty medication. And I found out the copay was going to be something like $300 a month on top of my other medications and everything else I need to do to stay healthy when I was already barely breaking even as a grad student. And so, um, you know, that was overwhelming. And, you know, you were actually there when I found that information out. (laughs) We were at AFS and um, Spokane and it was, I remember being very bizarre getting that news because I like immediately was like, okay. I can't deal with this now. I have to push this in the back of my brain and go downstairs and network. 
at this conference. Um, like I can't have a breakdown and cry right now. So yeah, that was stressful yeah. <laughs> and it sucked. Um, I am happy to report that I have better insurance, so I don't pay $300 a month. Um, my rheumatoid, my uh, rheumatoid arthritis is completely under control. And while it's still something that I think about from time to time that it could flip, I do now feel more confident um, that I won't have as long of a flare-up as I, I did before and now have a rheumatologist in Bozeman. So I think I just have a lot more information and support now to not let it get that far again. Yeah. But, you know, even though my flare-up ended in September, it, it took until May, really, for me to feel like myself again and to feel physically strong and so from what like 2018 2019 to may of 2023 i was either like sick or recovering or rehabilitating and it's a really long time to not feel like myself um and as you know katie i'm a very active person (laughs) i like to be an active person and having rheumatoid arthritis did not let me do that for a lot of that time period. And so, you know, not feeling like myself and thinking maybe, you know, that I wouldn't ever get there again was something that unsurprisingly trashed my mental health Mm -hmm. um, and led to very severe anxiety. And and patients with RA are something like 70% more likely to struggle with anxiety and depression than the general population, which makes sense. You, um, you know, you either like are in chronic pain and or are afraid you're going to go back to chronic pain. And so last year, you know, when my flare up was still not under control, I um, began having regular anxiety attacks. Um you know, to the point where I was told I was suffering from panic disorder. um, And it manifested in very strange ways. So I love spending time in the mountains. And I do have a fear of heights. But you know, typically, as long as I stayed away from like jackknife ridges, and like scaling cliff faces, I was fine. Um, But then last summer, I started having anxiety attacks on trails that I had done before. Um, with no problem and from there just spiraled and got worse and I was having severe anxiety and anxiety attacks you know in the car driving to a hike where I would maybe encounter heights Um, and then it from there just spiraled out of control even more I was having panic attacks stopped at stoplights in town Um, (laughs) you know really not great Um, and i started weekly therapy and began to understand and identify what was going on and what was causing this to just get worse, not seemingly out of nowhere, but so quickly. And very long story short, my therapist is incredible and um, almost immediately keyed in on me having um, ADHD, which is wasn't necessarily a surprise for me, just not something I really thought about impacting my life that much. So I didn't really care to get diagnosed because I didn't think it really mattered. And boy, how I was wrong. (laughs) Um, And so through that process, I was able to like stand and treat my ADHD 
and slowly but surely regain control over my anxiety in life. My therapist from my first appointment was like, I don't think you have generalized anxiety. I'm not diagnosing you with anxiety. And I was like, what? I just told you I'm having panic attacks and anxiety attacks everywhere. Like, so I was like, okay. And and like, she told me why she's like, I think it, it you actually have untreated ADHD and it's stemming from this. And I was like, you know, okay, you're, you're the expert here. I don't, I don't know what's going on. That's why I'm here. I'm, if that's what you say, like, I'm willing to try what you have to offer. And it took a long time, but I, I now finally feel like I have, you know, control over my anxiety in a way that I really just didn't think I would ever have. But yeah, exacerbated by my anxiety was exacerbated by having undiagnosed and untreated ADHD in combination with you know, managing rheumatoid arthritis and the stress of grad school, which alone is enough (laughs) to make anybody spiral. Um, So yeah, like grad school is stressful. (laughs) You know, it's amazing. It's the most rewarding thing, but also the hardest and most stressful thing at the same time. Um, So yeah, it's just so important to deal with your shit for lack of a better term like you know (laughs) deal with your mental health and because yeah I wouldn't I would have had to drop out if I hadn't I mean there's no way I would have made it this far in with um as bad as my mental state was a year ago without it without like you know some very like an intervention yeah Gosh, I wasn't expect. I was expecting to laugh a lot in this conversation. I was not expecting to almost cry, <laughs> which I did. Same here. <laughs> but I guess there's a couple things I, I think I will just note on. One is that it's so. Okay, I guess I'll take a step back and say that there is a, in my mind, kind of insane run that Big Sky hosts called the Rut, where it's like, <laughs> but it's like all these different lengths of just like running straight up a mountain and it sounds terrible to me but Katie has been training with some other grad students um to run that and it's just so nice to hear that you're like able to do that and spend all this time in the mountains and like work oh, god damn it <laughs> I'm gonna have to cut all of this out <laughs> but it's just so nice to see how far you've come <laughs> And like oh, being able to me. do that. <laughs> and then the other thing I was going to say is nice, or I should just like emphasize the importance of, is that you were able to get that better insurance because your advisor was able to help like cover that for you. And so just for if there's any academics or future people out there that are like questioning how important health insurance can be for grad students just to like emphasize (laughs) that it is so critical in so many situations so people should know that (laughs) yeah I um you know my advisor is incredible I had a meeting and sobbed at him that was like I can't afford to be in grad school because of my medical bills um and he was very quickly able to um you know help me and help prorate a new insurance so I could afford it and yeah, I 
I like the fact that um you know health insurance is not something most grad students get um you know some universities do some don't but yeah the fact that it's not something that all grad students just have access to blows my mind I mean just you know being grad school alone is enough of a stressor that we don't need to worry about whether we can afford to take care of our health um so yeah (laughs) give your students health insurance Ugh, okay, we're going to move past this to have your topics because I just sobbed the rest of the time. How dare you make me cry. I'm so sorry. Ugh, was not expecting that. Okay, in a complete, like, 180, one question I like to ask all guests, but especially grad students, is what hobbies and interests do you have outside of fishery science? You know, listeners may have gathered at this point that I love to suffer for fun. (laughs) I'm a proponent of type 2 fun. So a lot of my free time now that I am healthy is spent trail running, hiking, backpacking, and skiing. I do yoga often, which might seem as a, like, it could be a relaxing activity, but I uh, gravitate towards the hard yoga classes. (laughs) Um... But my other hobbies include uh, thrifting, looking to get into knitting this winter, um, and back into embroidering. I also um, dog sit a lot. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's what I like to do. It pretty much sums up all my free time right there. Yeah. I mean, that is a lot of things to suck up your free time. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I I know you've been really looking forward to this part. What we call the tough part of the interview is over. And normally I would say that this next part is the tough part, but I wasn't expecting to cry in the main interview. So this might actually be easier. <laughs> and we're down to the final five questions, which is a group of questions we ask each of the guests that come on the show. The first one, which I'm so excited to hear what you came up with, is what is your favorite fish? I mean, you already know I'm mad about this question. <laughs> How dare you? I've... I've uh, t- told you my full feelings on this question yes. many times is that I've listed like 20 fish. While I'm still not going to narrow it down to one, I will highlight one and then list several after. Right. <laughs> so currently the fish, my favorite fish that's bringing me the most joy in my life right now is the Pacific spiny lump sucker, which is described by the aquarium of the pacific as a bizarre cute comical entertaining and as a ping pong ball of fins <laughs> which is a very adorable amazing and like such a fitting description of this fish i was actually fortunate enough that i have seen one in real life in a tide pool in southeast alaska and there at least this one was a about the size of a ping pong ball. It was a deep, uh, like magenta red color, very cute and just comically bad at swimming. Like a ping pong ball with fins is so fitting. So, you know, it was pretty easy just like cup with my hands to catch Mm it. Yeah, I remember like just thinking how cute and fun this fish was. And they're they're found in intertidal zones from like, I think Washington North 
through the Aleutian Islands and then west across the Bering Sea to Japan. And they're cool because their pelvic fins have actually evolved into a large suction cup. So while they're really bad at swimming, they can attach to surfaces, which allows them to live in intertidal zones where, you know, tides are constantly going in and out and water's moving that they can just like attach to a rock or kelp or some sort of surface and just hunker down. And I just, I'm in love with them. They're so yeah. cute. I'll have to send you a photo that I, I have of the one I found. But, you know, of course, salmon, duh. I love salmon. All all salmon. I think they're the coolest fish, you know. Anadromy is like such a mm-hmm. cool and unique and rare life history. And they're just, yeah, they always blow my mind to think about. Sturgeon, paddlefish, sculpin, humpback chub. Last semester, I did a very detailed deep dive on the Formosan landlocked salmon, which is a subspecies of the Masu salmon, um, which those are also really cool. But I think I'll just stop myself now <laughs> listing fish because I'm just going to then list every fish I've right. ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're just also cool. They're just also cool. There's so many. How can I narrow it down to one? Yeah, that. In my mind, that's always like the hardest question that I have to ask is like, I don't know what my favorite fishes are all amazing. <laughs> okay, moving on. What is your favorite memory from your career so far? I mean, again, how dare you? <laughs> um, I think my, this is so hard. I think my favorite memory was when I was um, in Lake Clark National Park and Preserve. I got to... Um, spend two weeks at a remote field camp on the Tulacuna River, which is like in the northwest part of the park. And it it's like Tulacuna Lake is this like massive, stunning glacial lake that the Tulacuna River drains. And so we had um, a fish weir on it. And because of that, you know, I got such an intimate experience with sockeye salmon returning to spawn because every one that made it above the weir like we physically let through the weir Mm -hmm. and we would you know catch uh you know 10 to 20 a day to take length measurements from so you were actually getting to handle these like incredible fish who have swam hundreds of miles up from the ocean to spawn the Tulacuna river drains into the stony river which drains into the cuscoquim river which if you look at a map, drains very far away from where Lake Clark National Park and Preserve is and like very far from a lot of the water watersheds that drain Lake Clark National Park and Preserve. Most of it drains into Bristol Bay or to the Cook Inlet. And so, um, yeah, it just was always blew my mind to be like, these fish just swam hundreds of miles. And like now I'm letting it through this weir. Um And we also saw, like, we had chum and pink salmon and Chinook salmon come through the weir. So it was just so cool to see, you know, that diversity of fish. And then there were also grayling and long-nosed suckers. And we had a couple pike and lake trout hanging out near the weir. And every day we had to get into the water to clean debris off the weir and make sure that it was still 
fish tight and no fish were able to swim through without us letting them through. Yeah, I think that's probably the highlight of my entire life. Like that was such <laughs> like that area is like truly magical, like stunning, beautiful. And then to yeah, just get to play in the river every day with these fish was yeah, coolest thing I've ever done and will probably ever do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that sounds so cool. Just want to go to Alaska so bad. <laughs> you gotta go. All right. Uh, what is your dream job and or location? I think my dream job is, you know, salmon research and management. As I've alluded to, I think they're the coolest fish and so interesting. Um, and I think location, Alaska for a few years and then like coastal Washington or Oregon to like quote unquote settle down and also mm-hmm. quote unquote be closer to friends and family because it's still yeah. would be far from a lot of my friends and family but closer than alaska is right. yeah i think that if you know, maybe like port angeles area which is pretty northwest washington <laughs> close to alaska as you can get with being in the lower 48 right. <laughs> would be cool but uh, yeah i think any coastal washington or oregon area i i love the mountains and i don't think i can live long term without them but i also really enjoyed my time spent in coastal areas and to have both of those is would just be incredible yeah for sure all right if money was not an issue what is one project you would like to work on uh, anything that requires travel by float plane and or horses <laughs> um, that's so cool but more specifically it'd be really cool and interesting to um, participate in research to understand the effects um, that hatchery origin salmon have on pacific wild salmon i think that's something that's that's really interesting and kind of more recently getting more attention so yeah i think that's something i'm personally pretty jazzed on and if if i have to get into a float plane to do it so be it <laughs> shucks i just need to take these pack horses out. <laughs> oh no all right our last question is if there's one pointer principle you could have programmed into everyone's head what would it be oh man to prioritize like finding joy and silliness in your life i know this field's is like very challenging to succeed in and it's super easy to get swept up to advance your career especially as a grad student you know you know Uh, know. we constantly (laughs) feel like we're always behind and we've never done enough in a day and there's always something more we can do but i pretty recently i've remembered like you can't forget to seek out the experiences that you know remind you why you wanted a career in fisheries to begin with yeah so just to slow down and find the little moments the pacific spiny lump sucker moments of your life <laughs> uh oh gosh i want that just, embroidered <laughs> you know because like yeah life's supposed to be hard but it's it's also supposed to be fun so i think yeah just I feel like a lot of times, like, I have to make a conscious effort to actually have fun. So, yeah. And then, secondly, if you're 
fortunate enough to have the means and access go to therapy. (laughs) Um, Well, I do know, you know, therapy is a privilege and it's expensive and a lot of people don't have access to it. Um, But if you do, it's incredible. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Uh, Well, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Um, As always, it's just so much fun chatting with you and getting to share your work with our listeners. Um, if people want to find out more information or just get a hold of you, uh, is there a good way for them to do that? I guess. Uh, I mean, I have an Instagram. It's at Furious, F-U-R-E-Y-O-U-S. I, it's private. So you might maybe need to message me that you're not just like some random person or like a spam account because I will just delete it. But I'm open to being contacted that way. If you do follow me, it's going to be mountains and animals, yeah. <laughs> other people's dogs. And this is really all I post. Or you can also email me at caitlin.fury at montana.student.edu. It'll also be in the show notes. So I can make sure that that's my correct yeah. email. <laughs> Hello, Fisheries Podcast listeners. As you may have realized, uh, we got a little emotional (laughs) throughout this interview. And after we finished recording, Katie realized she had one last message that she wanted to share with you all. Um, So a few days after Katie and I recorded, I realized that I (laughs) forgot to mention something extremely important. So I'm hopping back on the mic. Hopefully... You cannot hear the magpies and squirrels screaming outside my house. Yeah, so I shared my physical and mental health story not to get pity or sympathy, but because I think it's really important to raise awareness and visibility around people with visible or invisible chronic illnesses and disabilities working in fisheries. When I received my diagnosis, I vowed to myself that I wouldn't be silent about it. Like, yes, I suffer from an autoimmune disease, but I know that I have an immense privilege by being a cisgendered, white person who at least now does not look like I am sick or disabled and because of my privilege I want to use my voice to show that people with chronic illnesses and disabilities belong in fisheries and in ecology in general. This is an able-bodied and male-dominated field but not due to necessity Autoimmune diseases are vastly more prevalent among women than men. Something like 80% of people who are diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder are women. So it's really important to me to show others who may have chronic illnesses and or disabilities that they belong in fisheries and can have a full and successful career. I know from my experience of sharing my physical and mental health journey with my friends and peers at MSU that this isn't an issue most people are consciously aware of or really think about unless they or someone they know has a chronic illness uh, and or disability. 
I mean, I know I didn't think much about it until I became sick. So I just want to raise awareness in the hopes that other people in the field will stop to think about what they can do and to have conversations about how to make fisheries accessible and welcoming to everyone. And that if you are struggling with a chronic illness and or disability, know that you're not alone and there's a place for you in fisheries and we want you and we need you. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to get a hold of me or the podcast, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod or send us an email to feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. Don't forget you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Katie Heinle. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, prioritize finding joy and silliness in Pacific spiny lumsucker moments in your life. And if you can afford it, go to therapy. Mm-hmm.